Hello everyone, we're um, looking at the book of Genesis and we're in chapter 2 today. Please excuse my voice, um, I've got uh, a bit of a throat today. Anyway, we're looking at chapter 2 and we're going to read a few sporadic verses from 18 to 24. Verse 18, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh." A large part of chapter 2 is clearly an expansion and a more detailed explanation of the sixth day of the creation week. And we're going to look at some of those details in a few moments. But before doing so, I want to address a modern problem that's particularly prevalent here in the Western world. In this culture, and increasingly so, appearances seem to be everything, and not the least in the matter of marriage or relationships or what is sadly and commonly becoming the norm, partners. God's intention is, and always has been, that marriage is for life. From the beginning of time, God made that clear. Partnerships, so-called, as far as I can see, seem to lessen the likelihood of that happening. I'm sure there are many reasons for two people not wanting to marry, but maybe one of them, and possibly the most likely, is that they don't want to commit, because as they, as they would say, it may not work out the way they wanted it to, and it's easier to split from a partner than from a spouse. There are so many things that could be said about this subject, but this isn't the time, and that isn't my intention today. The point I want to make is that appearances, though perhaps they may be the initial cause for attraction, are not the vitally important issues when it comes to this most serious of decisions that is intended to last and to be until death do us part. What is of vital importance is that of compatibility and suitability, and that is what is often clearly missing in many a marriage, and obviously so. But this is where the Christian man and woman, who are walking close to the Lord, have an incalculable benefit. A marriage sometimes described as a marriage made in heaven is what should always be the case among believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. God is ready and willing to guide the young or maybe even older unmarried believers into that pathway of his choosing if they're only willing to listen to his voice and follow his guiding hand. So, dear young uh, or even not-so-young Christian, don't just marry because you're worried about being lonely or left on the shelf. If you want to please the Lord and have happiness and a fulfilling family life, wait upon God for his guidance. And don't compromise the standards, principles and statements of his holy word. And never become unequally yoked together with an unbeliever because it's contrary to God's word and will and, <coughs> and will inevitably bring difficulties and challenges that will bring you sorrow and division. Well, after that brief introduction, 
Let's take a look at this beautiful portion of God's Word. And it is, of course, the very first marriage in this world's history. And apart from its prophetic nature, it's the perfect way into this most blessed of states that God has designed. Not only for procreation, but also for the joy and oneness of the married couple. What I mean by the perfect way is that it was God who brought together these two people, a man and a woman, who were totally suited to each other and who were united together from a place and source of love and affection. We'll see in a few minutes the process that he used to do so and how it was such a wonderful figure and foreshadowing of the greatest union of all time and eternity, Christ and the Church, his body and his bride. But before we look at some of the things I've just mentioned, let's have a brief look at the context. God said that everything that he had created and made up to the end of the fifth day was good. But you will have noticed, if you've been reading the passage carefully, that he said during day six that there was something that was not good. But by the end of the sixth day, as he looked at everything that he had made, he declared that it was very good. It's not difficult, therefore, to see that there was something very special that he was going to do on day six that would transform the good of day five and the not good of day six into a declaration that everything was very good at the end of day six. This final act of creation, which we're about to look at, was in fact, I believe, the crowning glory and topstone of all his creatorial work. And it was of such significance and importance to his own purpose and plan for the well-being and joy of the man. So what was it that God considered was not good? This is what he said. It is not good that the man should be alone. And for Adam, what God then did was was for immediate benefit and blessing. But as I've already said, I believe it is also a beautiful and wonderfully significant foreshadowing of what he would do for the man, Christ Jesus, when he created the church to be his body and his bride. It's interesting and no doubt significant that the Lord Jesus is often called the man in the scripture. He is also designated in scripture as the second man and the last Adam. But as the man, for instance, in John chapter 19, you remember that Pilate, his judge, said unto them, Behold the man, in Greek, Echihomo. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says this, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And typically of Christ in Esther chapter 6, you remember the king said to Mordecai, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honour, or literally, the man in whose honour the king delights. So God then created a woman for the man, and she was exactly suited to Adam to be his wife, his companion, his complement, his helper, and that entity of two becoming one by a divinely appointed union. So here is a conundrum for you to think about. 
What we would naturally expect is that 1 plus 1 equals 2, which is how many marriages are. Two people living together, but they are still determined to maintain their own independence. But God's way is this, 1 plus 1 equals 1. A man shall leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. There's no independence here, but rather interdependence and total unity. The creation of the woman was so different from anything that had been created in any of the previous days of creation. The text tells us that Adam said, She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This woman Eve, therefore, was created, made and produced from someone who already existed, Adam. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, we read, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh thereof, and the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman, and brought her unto the man. So we see the woman's very life, existence and her position with Adam was totally derived and dependent upon him. The process of her creation first required the deep sleep of the man, then the removal of a bone, and from that bone God made a woman, as only God could do. Incidentally, it was not from his head to rule over him, or from his feet for her to be trodden on, but a rib from his side, where her permanent position was to be. And it was the closest bone to his heart, so that she should be loved. I believe that of those who have any appreciation and understanding of New Testament scriptures, these things speak so clearly, beautifully and eloquently of how the church, which is the body and bride of Christ, was created. The Lord Jesus experienced not a painless, deep sleep like Adam did, which was the first operation, the first anaesthetic, so to say, but the deep darkness and unimaginable sufferings of Calvary. Scripture tells us there was three hours of darkness over all the earth, commencing at midday, when the sun was at its highest. During those dark hours, God dealt with sin in his creation and my sins personally. As my saviour, the Lord Jesus exhausted the judgment consequent upon them as he suffered the just one for us, the unjust ones. There in those dark hours, God wrought a work of new creation in which there was formed a bride, a companion for his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This bride, composed of every true believer, is perfectly suited to her bridegroom because she is part of him, so to say. She has been formed by God from the one whose side was opened by a spear on Calvary's cross. And from that side there flowed blood and water. How beautiful this is that here in these verses that are so full of the almighty power and wisdom of the creator of the universe, we should see God's love. 
and his desire to bless his creation, his creature man, and as we've seen, crown his creation by this final act that speaks volumes about his love for his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus, and the bride that he was producing. So as we peruse God's glory, majesty and power in his creatorial acts, we also are privileged to witness his purposes of love and grace. There's so much more in these verses that we could speak of, but the one that is of such amazing joy to believers, and to me in particular as I've thought about it, and is totally glorious, is this, that all this was completed and done before ever sin came into the world. What I learned from this is that so far as God is concerned, the church, the body and bride of Christ, in other words, all true believers, is absolutely sin apart. That does not mean, of course, that we as individuals haven't sinned. Of course we have. But what it does mean is that so far as the plan and purpose of God is concerned, that which Christ has done for those who comprise the church is such that sin is utterly absent. And because of what he has done in the darkness of Calvary, he has made us totally suited to be the bride of Christ and to be the heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Amazing. The New Testament letter of Ephesians speaks much about these things. And as we've seen in Genesis 2, God brought the bride he had formed to Adam. And here in chapter 5 of Ephesians, Paul tells us that the church will, at the rapture, be presented to Christ, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. These are the exact same words, incidentally, used of the character of the Lord Jesus himself by Peter in his first letter as he wrote about Jesus being our Redeemer. He says, The precious blood of Christ is that which has redeemed us, as of a lamb, notice, without blemish and without spot. So you can see then, as I've been trying to convey, that we have been taken from the side of the Saviour, so to say, and made by God's amazing grace and his new creation into that which is perfectly suited and fitted to share Christ's love and glory throughout eternal ages. To finish, to conclude, there's part of a verse of a rather beautiful hymn that we sing sometimes that expresses these things perhaps far better than I've been able to today. That Part of that verse says this, Meet companions then for Jesus, from him, for him made, glory of God's grace forever, there, in me, displayed. May God bless his word to you as you meditate upon these most beautiful and wonderful and eternally precious considerations. God bless you.